This morning I want to supplement a bit the material that we have in 1 Peter. Pastor Steve will continue to preach through 1 Peter. And so as we were talking about how this might work, rather than kind of insert myself into the process of where he's going, we thought, well, why don't I look at Peter's life and uh, events in his life that we find in the Gospels and the book of Acts that will then shed more light on the book of 1 Peter. We have a wealth of material, of course, on Peter. He's one of the most prominent of the disciples, and so we, we have a, real, a lot we can work with, and, uh, and he's a person we can relate to, and so it's interesting to look at his life, seeing the things that he's learned. See, we see Peter at his best and at his worst in the Gospels. And the letter that we call 1 Peter, of course, was written some probably 30 years after the events of our text this morning. So as we read 1 Peter, we get the reflections and encouragements of an older and wiser Peter who has grown and who's changed over the years because of following Christ. And so what I want us to focus on our text this morning is both the events as they're recorded and then how we see Peter's lessons learned. How do the events fit in the context of his life as a, as a disciple? And how do they connect to what he has written us in 1 Peter? So it's a dramatic event that we turn to in Luke 22. It's on page 746 in the Pew Bibles. There's a sermon outline as well in the bulletin. So uh, turn with me there if you would. We'll read from Luke 22, starting verse 24. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves." You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison. And to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me. You will deny three times that you know me. Please pray with me. Father, as we come now to your word, we're thankful for it. And we just ask that you would speak to your people through this time. Because we need it. And we need your word as, as our food. We need to hear it. We need to understand it. We need you to speak through your spirit to us, and we pray that you will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever look back on your life? Some of us can look back further than others, but do you ever look back on your life and consider what was truly formative for you? What was formative in your life? If someone was writing your biography, what would be one or two events that they would point to that maybe could have gone either way? but that ended up changing your course or opening up a new path for you. Have you ever thought of that or considered it? For me, I think of the the decision I had when I was going to college. I actually ended up going to my second choice college. 
for a number of reasons, but, but one of the key reasons was sort of an offhanded comment that I made as I was in the process of an interview with my first choice college. It, I didn't think it was a big deal. I didn't think much of it. But it ended up that that event really sort of closed that door. And I only knew that sort of later and opened up a different door. And I wonder how different my life would have been had I gone that way versus that way. And I think we see something of that in Peter's life. And I hope that as I have opportunities while we're preaching through First Peter to look at other examples of Peter's life that we'll be able to see formative events in Peter's life and then how they connect to First Peter and what they can teach us there. It's probably helpful just real quickly to place these events in the context of Peter's life. We remember um, Luke 5 when he was called from fishing for fish to fish for men. Jesus calls him and, and makes him one of his disciples. Over the next two or three years, he follows Jesus as one of the twelve. And we see, of course, that the events of Holy Week, where we're in the middle of here, are devastating for the disciples, as in the following day, Jesus goes to the cross. After the events in our text, directly after, we see Peter fighting with swords to defend Jesus against the crowds who are going to arrest him, and then this very same day, run from Jesus, denying that he even knew the Savior, as Jesus in this text predicts that he will. After the resurrection, Jesus restores Peter as his friend, as his follower, as his disciple, and as a leader in the early church. And Peter continues in that leadership role through the early decades of the church as he then writes First and Second Peter and beyond until his death. He's seen as an elder and a leader. The sermon outline gives you sort of the quick picture of that as well with additional uh, scripture uh, references. But our text describes this morning that in the minutes just after the Passover meal, while they're still sitting at the table and the original institution of the Lord's Supper, the disciples are engaged in a dispute about who was the greatest of them. Verse 24. Also, a dispute arose among them as which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. This is an ongoing question for the disciples, wasn't it? Who was the one who is the greatest? And it seems completely out of place on this night and at these events. In earlier recounting of the same controversy, the mother of James and John is specifically mentioned as advocating for her sons before Jesus, that they would have places of prominence among the twelve. And the rest of the passages that talk about this controversy, this ongoing problem of this, the disciples arguing about who was greatest, there's, they're sort of generic. It's just the disciples. It doesn't say particularly which ones. But based on all that we know about Peter... It seems like he would have been right in the middle of that mix, right? He would have seen himself as a leader. He was a spokesman. He was a prominent one among the twelve. And so even though this account doesn't specifically mention him, I think we can read that into it, that Peter would have been in the middle of this dispute about who is the greatest. And one traditional reason for that was the idea that Peter was among the oldest of the disciples. By the time that he's called by Jesus, he's already married, and he has his own home, 
according to Luke 4. And it seems like Peter also has his own fishing business in partnership with Andrew, whereas, for instance, James and John are still working for their father, Zebedee. So maybe there's the sense that Peter is one of the oldest. Greatest can mean oldest. So this is another reason to think that this might be the this dispute might actually be centered on Peter. Jesus washed the disciples' feet at this point in the evening as John 13 records it. And even in that great act of service, who's the one who's objecting? Who's the one who's protesting and arguing with Jesus about that he shouldn't do that or that he should do that? Of course, we remember it's Peter. Jesus is saying here, the lesson doesn't need a lot of explanation. The way of leading and ruling for Jesus and his disciples is to be the exact opposite of the way of leading and ruling of the kings and rulers of the world. Normally, the most important person is the one who reclines at the table and is served by all the others. But Jesus, who is the unquestioned leader and certainly the greatest person of the, among these twelve is the one who serves the others. And so Jesus, of course, is saying selfish ambition, arrogance and pride, domineering leadership, hunger for power, all of these things have no place among the disciples of Jesus. These are signs of spiritual immaturity among both the twelve disciples and, of course, in the church today. It's important that the disciples hear this message that they learn this lesson, that they, that they have demonstrated for them, Jesus washing their feet and the rest of it, because of what will come next for them. Leadership will be required of these disciples, and particularly of Peter, after Jesus' ascension. So Peter will, in time, we see, respond with maturity and really emerge as a true leader of the early church, an elder to the audience of the letter that we call First Peter, a vehicle through which the Holy Spirit will speak to the church. And we see that Peter learned this lesson from what we find in 1 Peter in a number of ways. One of the ways that's interesting and sort of backhanded is if you read uh, scholarly commentaries about who wrote 1 Peter, there's always a group of critics who deny that Peter was actually involved in it for reasons other than the textual evidence, I think. But one of the reasons that critics give that Peter of the Gospels couldn't have written the letter we call 1 Peter is because it's not enough about Peter. They think that the the Peter of the Gospels would have had more about himself in the letter that we call 1 Peter. But I think the more compelling way to view that is that Peter learned this lesson that it's not about himself, that it's about Jesus. So he doesn't need to write about himself. He needs to write about Jesus and what Jesus had done for him. Because that's what he knows that the church needs. More broadly, I think the disciples learned this lesson in that even among all of the struggles in the early church and the problems that the church faced, and even leadership struggles that were were common in Corinthians and we see in other places between Paul and and Apollos and the, the factions that were dividing some of the churches, we don't see that among the 11, do we? I mean, I couldn't think of a single example after the book of of, uh, after Acts 2, where we see the disciples engaged in a conflict with each other about who's the greatest. Instead, they're all working together as God sends them out through, through that region and, and to who knows where with this gospel message. I think the disciples got it. 
They learned this lesson about leadership and service as they grew. And as Peter writes his letter, he's freed from the need to rule as the Gentiles did. He's free to shepherd the flock, not lording it over them, as he writes in 1 Peter 5. To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but by being examples to the flock. Peter learned the lesson that the greatest in the kingdom is the one who serves. Jesus moves from this teachable moment, this dispute about who's the greatest, to the bigger picture of what these will be called to lead. What's at stake here? What's really going on? Verse 28. Jesus says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. These have stayed with Jesus. These have stood with him for these three years. And I think Jesus' words are a bit ironic and they're a bit gracious here, aren't they? These are the ones who have stood with Jesus in his trials and his temptations. And he seems to be commending them. They're not the crowds who fell away at his hard sayings. They're not the religious leaders of the day who opposed him out of jealousy. They're not the Jerusalem crowd who welcomes him on Palm Sunday and then a week later or a few days later is saying, crucify him, we want Barabbas. They aren't like Judas, who just probably moments before left this meal for 30 pieces of silver. These have stood by him. And though all that is true, of course, the biggest trial is yet to come, and Peter and all the others will spectacularly fail. They won't stay with Jesus. They'll run away. They will, as Jesus says in this parallel account in Matthew 26, they will fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 13.7, strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Even so, right? Jesus is gracious to encourage them, and even more to entrust to them this kingdom. Verse 29, it says, And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me. They've had a kingdom conferred to them, assigned to them. This, in classical Greek, the term that's here had a number of usages, but the most relevant was that this was a technical legal term meaning to make final testamentary disposition in view of death. It was the action to make a will, to spell out the final testament of a person, to produce the covenant that was binding on those who remained to do the wishes of the one who was dead. The related noun is used consistently and translations from the Hebrew word covenant in the Old Testament to the Greek. That's, this is the noun that they use, and it's the, word, the common word for what they would call a will, the last will and testament. Of course, what happens in a will? Possessions are conferred. They're assigned. They're disposed to those who, will, uh, who are mentioned in the will who will inherit them. And so this is the sense of the verb here. Jesus is saying that he is conferring, he is assigning to these disciples a kingdom in the same way that God the Father has conferred or assigned a kingdom to Jesus, his son. 
So just as the Father assigns a kingdom to Jesus, so also Jesus assigns this kingdom to his disciples. Night in the midst of these events. Jesus says all of this. Isn't that amazing? One commentator in the passage wrote, as the Father has ordained a royal dominion to Jesus, so he ordains for the disciples to share in his future reign. It's interesting to consider both parties in this kind of transaction, right? The one who makes the will assigns who gets what. On the other side are those who will inherit. They receive what's assigned to them. They receive the inheritance. The disciples here receive the promise of each one's assignment in that kingdom. They will receive a glorious inheritance. The news delivered to them in the midst of their failure. Jesus spells out a bit more what does this kingdom consist of. It consists of eating and drinking with Jesus. It consists of sitting on tribes and ruling over, having a share of the responsibility of the 12 tribes of Israel, a conventional expression for the members of the kingdom, that is, the church. Do they learn the lesson? Well, the present and future inheritance of the kingdom of God for all of God's people, of course, is a major theme. In the New Testament, the disciples learned from Jesus to place their hope in this promise, to live for this kingdom, to reflect upon this inheritance. Peter teaches us so in, in 1 Peter, right? In uh, chapter 1, in a verse, verses we've already studied, we've already seen them. In his great mercy, God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Peter learned dramatically that he can't ruin his inheritance. He can't make Jesus write him out of his will. It was kept safe forever. The promise is clear and it's glorious, but the disciples, of course, aren't quite there yet. The kingdom won't arrive fully, hasn't yet won't arrive even more until the death and resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit. It won't arrive all at once. It will come in, in the midst of opposition. Verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Jesus gives his disciples two perspectives here. One is Satan's demanding to sift them. And the you in verse 31 is plural. So he's talking about all of the disciples will be sifted, that Satan wants to have all of them, and that he's demanding to sift them as wheat. But Jesus is praying, right? That's the other side of it. And in John 17, of course, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus prays. That's on this night also. Jesus prays for his disciples and even for us who would, who would believe because of their testimony. But here, in verse 32, the you is singular. Jesus is praying for Simon. It's interesting, isn't it? Satan will attack them all. Jesus prayed for them all in John 17, but Jesus has a special role for Simon Peter, that his faith may not fail, that Simon would turn back again 
to Christ, and that he would be in a position then to strengthen his brothers. Isn't that interesting? And there's an irony here as well. Satan is demanding his pound of flesh. He wants to cause pain. He wants to shake the disciples up. He wants to discourage them. But the irony is that the sifting, what happens? It will get rid of the chaff and the impurities and the falsehood and the, and the fake grain. As in sifting wheat, what do you have left? You have what remains, what's good. Satan schemes, even in the lives of these eleven, as he means them for harm, will actually prepare them for greater service in the kingdom after the Spirit comes upon them to send them out with the gospel. Satan is acting like the refining fire, right? The impurities will be burned away, and what will be left is what's precious and what remains. And that's the same image here of the sifting of wheat. But Peter isn't at that point yet. He can't hear this. He argues with Jesus. He's full of self-confidence and bravado. You know, he's, he says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. In the parallel accounts, we get, you know, this must have been an ongoing conversation. The gospel writers don't, you know, record everything that's said. And we get in the parallel accounts similar words. You know, it must have uh, similar things that Peter says, but some of them even stronger. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. I will lay down my life for you. Peter's best intentions, his desire to fight back even with swords as he will in the garden, despite all of those things, Jesus tells him the truth, that he will deny him, even that very night. What's the lesson for Peter? Well, he can't rely on his own efforts. He can't rely on his own bravado and his own strength of character and his own resolve. Because on this day, fear and cowardice will overtake him. But Jesus prayed for him that his faith would not fail. And it didn't. Peter's faith remains. And his failures can be used by God to prepare him for greater service in the kingdom. And that's exactly what happens. As the story unfolds, Peter is restored by Jesus to become a rock of the church who will indeed strengthen his brothers. And he'll be used to build up the church on this foundation, on this testimony of what? Of Jesus' forgiveness. Of Jesus' restoration. Of the fact that Jesus can use a denier and a coward as the rock on which he builds his church. And we see the lesson learned, don't we, in 1 Peter. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5.10, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Peter experienced that restoration. And Jesus made him strong, firm, and steadfast. And a rock the church. What does all this mean for us today? Well, Peter, of course, isn't the hero of the story. He's the anti-hero. We're not studying Peter for Peter's sake, but we're studying Peter because we see what God does even with Peter. We see what God does even with us. This pattern is true in our lives. Our faith can be strengthened 
as we see the lessons that Peter learned, that we may learn these kind of lessons and take them away from our text this morning. Well, what are, what are some of the lessons? One, I think we always have to remember about leadership and service. God calls every believer to a life of service, of putting others' needs ahead of our own, of thinking of the other person first, of giving our lives for the sake of others. Opposite the world, we have an opportunity to declare the truth of the gospel in the way that we serve one another and in the way that we serve those outside of the church. And of course, it's not easy. We have to ask God to help us to swim upstream, to move towards maturity rather than coast in these kinds of ways. Because we'll trip ourselves up. We can be tempted to think that it's just my personality as an excuse for being proud, or that I really do know what's best, even if I haven't really listened to other people. Or that that's just what leadership is. I mean, somebody has to make the decisions, right? Someone has to take charge. And there may be a place for that. But we always have to question, what's, what's our heart in that? And have, are we putting others first? And are we seeing their needs ahead of our own? Have we learned that lesson about the kingdom? Second, we have before us the ironclad promises of a future inheritance. Present and future inheritance in the kingdom of God. And that changes the way that we live. It changes the way that we invest in this life. God has assigned to you an inheritance in his kingdom if you believe and trust in Christ. And that inheritance can never perish or spoil or fade. And moth can't destroy it and rust can't destroy it and thieves can't break in and steal it. And this should change us. And it should reorient the things that we pursue in this life. When we were in uh, in New Jersey last weekend, and thank you all for praying for us. We had a good trip, and we'll tell you more about it in the coming weeks and have opportunities to go back. While we were in New Jersey, um, we were driving along, and I saw a sign on a real estate agency uh, billboard, and it said this, The best investment on earth is earth. And so, you know, obviously the real estate people are trying to say to you, you can't do better than investing in the ground and what's here. And that may be the best investment on earth for your money, but it's not the best investment on on earth. It's not the best investment of your life. There's a kingdom to be invested in that produces an inheritance that doesn't spoil or fade, that produces treasure in heaven that God has for us. Have we learned that lesson? Third, I think we can see clearly the pattern in our lives that trials and sifting and our own failures help us to learn the gospel and help us to apply it to the brokenness in our hearts and to give grace to others. And Jesus is in the business of restoring men and women and boys and girls to make them strong, firm and steadfast in Him. And this often does come in the midst of trials. Part of what's critical for us as believers and as a church is to learn how to suffer well. Romans 5 tells us, of course, that suffering can produce character, and character hope, and hope of a nature that doesn't disappoint. But we know also that suffering can produce bitterness, 
and frustration and cynicism, even among believers. Watching others suffer can produce in us pity, or it can produce in us encouragement and strength, even gained from those who are suffering. Jesus told Peter, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. One who has come out of the other side of suffering, or is even in the midst of it, can often be a great encourager in the church, can't they? And we can benefit from sitting with those in, the, in a trial, spending time with them, drawing near when we might be tempted to back away or when we don't know what to say. The church is the church at its best when we're rejoicing and weeping with those who are rejoicing and weeping. Consider that this morning. Consider suffering in your life. Consider suffering that you experience in connection with others or of people that you know who are suffering. Are there those that you might be able to encourage? Are there those that you could encourage both in their trial or through your trial? And how you see the Lord work through something that you suffered. That you would be faithful to pass that on and be an encouragement to others. Reflect upon these lessons that Peter teaches us this morning. What have we learned of them? Do you want to learn these lessons? It begins with the gospel, as it always does, that God forgives that God restores his children, even as they fail, even if they fail spectacularly. Jesus has abundant grace for his people that changes the course of our lives, that changes what we invest in, changes how we lead, changes how we suffer. God's discipleship plan for each of us is unique. But our text, I think, is a great encouragement for us today of a king and a kingdom who's coming and how we are a part of that kingdom, even as Peter was. Amen. Please pray with me. We are thankful that your word speaks and that it's powerful and that you are the same one at work in us who was at work in Peter and the disciples and who was at work in sending your son, that he would pray for us, that he would strengthen us and give us faith, that he would take the punishment that we deserved that we could receive a glorious inheritance. We thank you for these truths this morning, and we pray that you would help us to learn them. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.